we've gotten interested in uh, large movements in, in science, so one of them being a kind of uh, scientific revolution within the area of communication, which we see as at last putting aside that old send receive model. You start uh, granting the receiver equal time and you transform the system into something quite different and a lot more interesting, a lot more exciting, and we think a lot more humane, and this is one of our concerns about it. So we think there is, within the field of communication itself, a beginning revolution of this kind, a shift from one paradigm to another, and um, this, of course, in terms of Kuhn's technical definition, is a scientific revolution. Communications towards a new humanism. A documentary series on human communication drawn from the conference of the International Communication Association in Montreal and prepared and presented by Alan Yates. Program 13. The new technology. A look ahead. A communications revolution was talked about by many delegates to the ICA meetings. A revolution occurring due to the explosion of sophisticated communications technology. But more importantly, not just because of the pure hardware of it all, rather because of what it at least promises for man. Especially as indicated by the opening speaker, L.S. Harms of the University of Hawaii, in its potential for promoting human interaction and participation giving groups and individuals the right to send and influence information rather than just receive it or be manipulated by it. The two-way implications were also outlined by Jay Weston of Ottawa's Carleton University. Well, I do think that right now communication technology has advanced to the point, certainly there are a lot of examples of it around, where groups of people will be able to, to communicate and, and talk about things with other groups of people. Now, in terms of uh, group interaction, I think in our society today, uh, there's a lot of a value for participation, a fully participative democracy, where all kinds of voices are heard. And uh, the technology is available now, and uh, certainly with uh, satellites and uh, a full use of uh, the potentials of interactive cable, that should be possible. One example of two-way audiovisual technology is teleconferencing, previously only possible with multi-phone hookups that left a lot to be desired. Jay Weston and Christian Kisten of the University of Montreal have undertaken a unique study on teleconferencing and found that the electronic face-to-face -face has its shortcomings and peculiarities too. Among other things, teleconferencing alters the power relationships and basic interactive modes of human exchange which, of course, would have serious repercussions on negotiation in business, for example. It's possible to cheat with the phone, but not possible in teleconferencing. So, in other words, the possibility of, of exerting influence on each other or the possibility to, to check on each other's behavior is practically nil. Everybody can be hiding behind this receiver and nobody sees, sees the other thing. Now, that is totally impossible in the video, right? Uh, 
And that is very strange. In other words, and we gave the people the opportunity to see themselves as the others saw them. So you're sitting in front of a set of TV, TV screens, you see the other group, and then you see a picture of your own group as the others see them. And it's very interesting to see the people always referring to their self-picture to see if, uh, am I behaving right? Am I sitting in the right way? Is this the right cheek they are seeing? In the beginning, the people come in and there's a phase of, uh, can you see us? Yes. What do you really see? In other words, uh, Hopefully, uh, do they really see me? To what, what, to what extent do, am I free to do, what I, uh, to do what I please? Can I, for instance, lean over to my neighbor and, and tell him uh, in a very low voice or non-verbally that the people on the other, uh, at the other end are stupid? Well, if they can see me, no. I couldn't do that, right? Because they could see that. So in the beginning, it's, it's sort of finding out how free you are then the people find out that they are not very free. And then the question comes up, well, if we're not very free, what are the rules of the game? In our own group, in the other people's group, and among the two groups. Weston and Kristen have also concluded that teleconferencing does things to people, especially to their normal speech modes and patterns, creating what Kristen calls new speak and new act. Teleconferencing is, among other things, one way of cutting down on business travel by keeping people at their office nodes. But how about keeping them at home, in front of information and communication terminals, as described by L.S. Harms? To what extent can you trade uh, telecommunication for transportation? And if you do, what are the consequences for, for humankind? That is, if you can stay home, work with a very elaborate terminal, communicate with a kind of uh, advanced uh, holographic uh, television uh, uh, system? Uh, can we program uh, down the road uh, a few decades and imagine a situation in which we really don't come in face-to-face -face contact with each other because it's perhaps not necessary, perhaps it's not desirable, but anyway, we don't. One step along the road to the terminal in the home is, of course, selective and demand cable television already providing some users with virtually any audiovisual material of their choice, piped right into their living rooms. To some, this spells the communications paradise. To George Gerbner of the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania, it has a much more crass promise. Well, it's to put, a, uh, put an additional box office on top of it. I'm very cynical, uh, maybe, uh, and I hope that not uh, that cynicism is not quite justified, but I see no reason why, if something works, and you invent a method by which, by which uh, 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 you can put a box office on every set, you would do anything else but what has proved to be quite workable, when at the same time you can also conduct probably the biggest business that the history of the world has ever invented. Uh, so I see, uh, I see that they those whose tastes are differentiated and who now uh, uh, enjoy a uh, diversified cultural life will be able to continue to do so a little more conveniently. They will be able to uh, order their movies home rather than go to the theaters. It will be the, the, the total demise of or the large even uh, continuing decline of, uh, of uh, let's say, theatrical distribution of films. 
uh, at a price which will be what, what the market, you know, what, what the traffic will bear. Those who now uh, lead a highly ritualized, uh, essentially lim very limited cultural life, namely the vast majority of the public essentially watch television every night and often most of the day those who are at home will continue to do so and, and some, for some of it they will have to pay more. If you figure a very modest fee, you find that uh, the fortunes that can and will be made in this are astronomical. What about the new technology's potential for elevation in the area of computers, for example? Many delegates talked about the promises held out by computerized information centers and systems. One spoke of their ability to augment the human intellect. James Baer of the Rome Air Development Center, New York, described a knowledge network involving more than 30 computer centers throughout the United States and Europe to link key knowledge workers and enable them to share their work and cooperate directly online within an augmented intellectual community. Baer studied users of the system through dialogue and interviews and watched their evolution, concluding also that it's part of an imminent communications revolution. We wondered now what would be the effects on the individual? Uh, what could this system conceivably do if it, if it really worked? Okay, the individual's thought processes, first of all, would be modified by this tremendously rapid availability of information and the ease of changing that information. No longer would an individual be limited to the rigidity that is represented by the written word. Once we've got something down like this, it's pretty hard to say, okay, whoops, you know, I want to change that, I want to modify that. In the computer, it represents a dynamic information database that hopefully will make or act as an extension to the person's own cognitive capabilities. In other words, the flexibility inherent in thought now is almost extended into the computer, which has a vast increase in storage capability and recall. Then, secondly, in addition to the individual effect, we expected that the communication of individuals accomplishing their work in this system will be modified by the access to each other's work and the ability to communicate immediately any kind of idea or input or modification they might have regarding the task that they are working on. And again, these people can be anywhere in the country. And uh, I find it exciting to be working along and think of something that refers to what the guy down in Washington is doing and immediately send that message to him, the idea that I had regarding his work. We expected that this would promote a group identity, a higher consensus in the teams that were working together through the system, and ultimately better decisions and products from the work of these groups. A dialogue was built, or at least a record of a dialogue was built concerning the effects of the system. Interviews were used to find out really what was happening to individuals as they became augmented knowledge workers and really what effects was the system having or was it just another automatic typewriter, just another text editor, the kinds of things that you find commercially available on computers today. We used unstructured observation to get serendipity kinds of uh, inputs. You know, uh, what, what things can you do now that you couldn't do before? 
now that this computer system is available to you. And I used personal account, my own experiences after using this system for a year. Learning to use the system resulted in uh, a number of things as individuals progressed and uh, became augmented knowledge workers. The first thing, as you might expect, was we found a little bit of resistance and uh, people started to find that the system was an aid as they experience a transition from online uh, use as a, as a typewriter to online composition, which was, I guess, the original intent brought to life as individuals now, instead of writing things down with pencil and paper, instead of outlining in traditional ways, we sit down at a terminal and pull together from the vast available resources of all their fellow team members, of everyone on the network, pull these things together, modify it, manipulate it, massage it, and come up with a product that really truly represented something that had never been you know, written down, never they never saw it on a printed copy. It was all through the computer system. Working along this direction, people began to experience a transparency. They could see through the system and uh, truly experienced what we call traveling through an information space. As we went along, we found that teams really realized the things I talk, talked about before, that the interaction among individuals was promoted by the system, that uh, no longer was there any inhibition about sharing things. People will go look at another individual's work, pull it into their own information space, massage it, change it, modify it for their own use. Now, I guess the system turns out to be a really neat tool for plagiarism if you look at it that way. But what we saw was teams now working together on a, on a common corpus of information that almost represented a common consciousness. And conceivably, we'd have networks of organizations that would be augmented. And so we would be able to move around, for example, through General Motors, through Nor Bell Northern, which is interested, through Xerox Corporation, which is interested, UCLA is interested. All these people would have all their knowledge work in the system, and we'd be able to move around and look through this, and ideas and so forth could be shared. And what I see as a revolution in communication, Peter Drucker, for my final idea, in his Age of Discontinuity, predicts a knowledge revolution that will be analogous to the Industrial Revolution. And I think this will be the tool that will bring it about. And it really will be a revolution in communication. Pending that revolution, however, man still feels ill at ease with such sophisticated machines as computers. And man-machine communication becomes a problem and research field in itself. William Powers was part of a team at the University of Oklahoma that examined human anxiety in contacts with the computer, even among those with considerable computer experience. He made these observations about experiments in reducing the anxiety by prior computer exposure. 
And of course, access to computers is greatly increasing, and we're not all augmented intellects, which is why Powers was interested in the anxiety implications for lay use. Is an actual physical operation enough to reduce a high anxiety operator? Uh, we don't know. Uh, can we use such techniques as systematic desensitization, which is presently being used to reduce speech communication anxiety? Uh, we don't know. I think that would be interesting to get to. This whole idea was kind of based on the premise that in today's society, the computer systems are becoming much more available to mass man, so to speak, in a sense, uh, releasing the computer scientists from uh, drudgerous, arduous types of tasks to where he can do his job, while the ordinary layman with a, a problem which can be solved by the computer, a, sl a slight amount of training time, can go in and actually manipulate the computer through terminals. Uh, I guess that's why I feel the research ought to continue. I think we're going to go more and more in that direction. Computer anxiety, newspeak, new act, video exploitation, and so on. What are the communication machines doing to man? Are they dehumanizing him? And is 1984 just around the corner? Questions much asked at the conference. But many delegates also defended the machines as mere dumb extensions and servants of man that are neutral in themselves. James Lewis of the University of South Dakota suggested we're looking at the problem the wrong way around by starting with machines and trying to work back to something that's human. Men are building the machines, and it seems that in the development of a, a use, usable and useful machine system that we're trying to look at man first, because we're, we're trying to build analog of certain of man's functions in the machine, and the, the, the place that we really have to begin is with the man or with the living system. You know, a good example, I think, that, that makes this point is the Mars robot that we're presently trying to build. Uh, the problem is that it takes, I guess it takes something like 30 minutes to send a signal to Mars and back. So that to build a robot that operates on Mars, we can't direct it from the Earth. We have to build a, a robot that can somehow function independently. And the big problem they've run up against is, okay, how do you get a robot to see? Well, it's pretty easy. You simply put a television camera on it. But seeing is more than just having a television camera there. You've got to, to build a machine that can somehow interpret the sensory input that it's getting. And the way they've solved this problem is to look at, well, the optical system and the frog and the optical system and man. And it seems that maybe to explore the functions of human communication, we shouldn't begin by looking at the machine because I think the machine is just an imperfect analog of man to begin with, that we need to focus on man. And if we do this, perhaps we can even build more human technologies because they more approximate the functions that, that man is capable of. Machines are only as good to men as men want them to be. A theme echoed by George Gerbner, who suggested that there's no such thing as inhuman technology. Essentially, machines do what people want them to do. And therefore, it is all for the purpose of carrying out human purposes. And the myth of the invincibility or irresponsibility of the machine is a very neat little, essentially, political ploy. You can make people blame the machine rather than the people who make the machine do what they want the machine to do for some kind of an invincible or unchangeable and uh, irreversible process. 
then in effect you are deflecting or shifting the area of public decision-making uh, away from the human uses, functions, and motivations. And this, uh, this has been a, a highly effective and a highly functional enterprise. T.J. Sain of the University of Florida also challenged the idea that machines are out to get men or that favoring technology makes one less human. I don't believe that science, machines, or scientists are after us. Scientific values and aesthetic values comprise just what the words imply. They're parts of a value system. I can't accept the implication that aesthetic values are more human than our scientific benefits. And I think that if we say, for example, someone who chooses beauty being a benefit over expedience as a scientific benefit is more human because of his choice, I think we're in error. I think that we're presented today not with a reduction of choices for us by science, but an expansion of choices, which, if anything, has confused us. I don't think our freedom has been reduced by science. I think it's been maximized beyond which we are, well, I think at present, incapable of dealing with or recognizing. Uh, I don't think that if any dehumanizing has occurred, it's because of something in the nature of science. I think it's maybe because the way we behave in the presence of technologies and scientific method, if anything. What is the just medium in the partnership between man and machine in this communications revolution? How much of the technology does man genuinely need to evolve? And what kinds of machines? L.S. Harms concluded that we don't really know where we're headed. And as we venture along in these directions, the thing we find, it's kind of startled us, is that we don't really know in any profound, systematic, detailed, human, humane way what human communication needs are present and future. You ask, as I did last summer at the International Telecommunication Union in Geneva, which is the UN agency which is responsible for the allocation of uh, radio spectrum and through that means for regulation and control of a great deal of the world's communication facilities, uh, how do you find out what technology to encourage, what uh, resource to allocate for this purpose or that? And they say, we ask the governments. And uh, the governments say that uh, they need good centralized communication systems so that they can transmit their messages to everybody in their jurisdiction so that the people can get the word. But it doesn't ask in any uh, detailed way. There is no mechanism that we can discover globally for probing in a systematic basis on monitoring what human communication needs are and what is much more important, we think, what they're likely to be particularly if we're concerned, as I presume those of us in this room are, about what it takes to become and remain a human, distinguishable from a machine. But even if the communication needs are filled by shiny new machines, will they prove accessible to people? Harms called, as we heard in an earlier program, for a bill of human communication rights. One of those rights, as we heard at the start, would be the right to participate in all the benefits of this new technology, fully and interactively. A nice thought. But here are a few suggestions, starting with Jay Weston, that at least in the case of the fancy expensive hardware such as interactive AV, the average man won't have much say or do. 
Now the question becomes who will eventually use this kind of facility and uh, I think that uh, it will not be a case of any uh, attempt to, uh, to, to restrict it in any sort of uh, overt kind of way. I think that uh, those people who have a need to get together and talk and know who it is they want to talk with, what groups they want to talk with, uh, will be the people who use the facility. Uh, it's going to be expensive for a while, but uh, I don't think in the long run it'll be all that expensive. It'll be the uh, organizational ability of people to get together in order to make use of, of, of the facility. And I'm suggesting that governments and uh, large business are the people who are already well organized and will make use of it. I don't think they will overtly restrict other people. It's just that... Uh, um, in terms of a fully participative democracy, I, I'm not convinced that uh, it will be widely used. Entropy, when it, when it uh, deals with social systems, as far as I'm concerned, uh, means that there is a fairly even distribution of information in the society, and there's a lot of entropic kinds of... Uh, uh, things going on. You take a look at women's liberation, universal college education, mass television, suggests some people that everybody's getting the same kind of information. Uh, I'm not, not convinced of this myself, but certainly interactive capabilities of, of, of uh, group conferencing will probably not be more of the same. It'll be something quite different. It won't... Uh, result in even distribution of information. Uh, certain select groups, I think, will have it. That's not necessarily bad. I'm not suggesting that everybody should have all the information available. Uh, the mind boggles at what I already have to deal with. You know, I don't... Weston's co-researcher, Christian Christen, was much more dubious about access to the new technology. Uh, well, here we are. We're inventing all kinds of communicational modes and uh, systems, and it's all very nice. And yet, on the individual and inter-individual level, nothing is going to be done. The, 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 the individual will still be sitting around uh, using old-fashioned, because this is basically what the telephone also is, old-fashioned means of communication, and uh, being fairly alienated from what is, what, what is happening around them, and therefore a victim of those social levels that can use the modern types of systems. Will, in other words, the individual be passed by by the innovation of the communicational revolution? Uh, yes and no. Uh, what I would say is that right now the individual is passed by, pa passed by in the sense of not being able to become a user, an actively involved participant. However, the individual is not at all being passed by uh, concerning the point of view of being exploited. Uh, you know, the, the questions of, uh, I don't know, uh, gathering information on people, uh, things like this. Uh, so in that sense, there is a very definite impact on the individual, but there is very, few, very little impact of the individual on the system. That one-sided impact brings us back to George Gerbner, who has this final word on communications and the new technology. The prediction that unless pressure is brought to bear, it will just be used to perpetuate the existing power structure and indeed pass the ordinary man right by. In general, uh, I would like to suggest that every technological innovation is used to extend the existing structure and to make it more profitable, more efficient, and more streamlined. It 
that is a technological innovation in and of itself is not going to transform the structure, but it will be used on behalf of the same institutions, essentially from, for, uh, for the same purposes. If it is felt, as, as I know many people, including myself, feel that new technologies lend themselves to new types of uses, they will not automatically do so. Then we have to act as, as citizens and, of course, as scholars, researchers, we have to try to provide the necessary intelligence that provides the basis for action and the basis for judgment to make some kind of a structural change in the institutions that will employ the new technologies on behalf of different aims and purposes than before. Otherwise, it's going to be a further extension and a further penetration of precisely the same overall structures of cultural distribution and precisely the same values. This has been Communications Towards a New Humanism, one of a series of programs drawn from the Montreal Conference of the International Communication Association. Technical operations were by Gilles Vaudeville. The series was prepared and presented by Alan Yates as an MA thesis for Montreal's McGill University and for Radio Canada International. <laughs>